I don't know about you, but I am not yet tired of winning. We've been doing a lot of of winning lately in the Supreme Court, but uh, we could be doing more. Uh, There's been obviously a ton of uh, big decisions coming down from the Supreme Court, many of them really excellent and favorable to conservatives. First and foremost, they're good decisions, I believe. They're right decisions. Second of all, uh, and relatedly, conservatives are happy about them because we believe them to be right. Um, The big one, obviously, is Dobbs v. Jackson Women's Health, which overturned Roe and its progeny, including Casey, meaning that abortion is now uh, going back to the states. I'm going to talk about that a little bit later. But I just wanted to remind you about some of the other ones that have been coming down because some of these decisions either got lost in the shuffle or we forgot about them when we got Dobbs or, you know, people don't really know what they're about. So, you know, just to review, right, in addition to Dobbs overturning Roe, that's the big one. That is a great victory for the country and for, of course, the pro-life movement. Um, We also got New York State Rifle and Pistol Association versus Bruin. This was decided, a lead lead opinion writer was uh, the based Clarence Thomas. And this was about whether you uh, need a weapon really for self-defense. That was the basic premise of, of Thomas's decision. The specific issue at stake was, you know, if if New York gives you permission to own a handgun in your house? Do you also have permission to carry it? And the answer was yes, because guns are for self-defense. This is very important. It's a very important victory for Second Amendment rights. Um, And then we had some First Amendment victories as well. Two decisions, Carson v. Macon and Kennedy v. Bremerton, uh, both having to do with religion in schools and both upholding the correct understanding of the Establishment Clause, which is that it does not fully secularize the public square, chase God out of every public location, but that it does not establish anyone sect or religion that all people uh, must, all citizens must believe in. And so in Carson v. Macon, Maine decided that you could use public funds for sending your kid to a parochial school if that, you know, if you would otherwise get public funds to send your kid to a different secular private school, then you could send your kid to a religious school too. And in Kennedy v. Bremerton, uh, the court ruled that prayer before a football game on the 50-yard line uh, on the part of the coach is not a violation of the First Amendment. Both of those thoroughly correct and important philosophical uh, and and principled decisions coming down from the court. This is the court that is doing the winning that Trump told us they would. He sat there and he said, I'm going to, if you elect me, I'm going to appoint justices. They're going to overturn Roe. Um, You know, for any criticism that you or I may have of Trump, he said he was going to do that. This is one of the most consequential things about his presidency, and he's not even in office anymore. So this is pretty amazing. But the latest Supreme Court decision is the one that we should talk about today because it's just hot off the presses. People were so overwhelmed with Dobbs that they weren't necessarily thinking about the fact that this one was still in the pike. But it's equally perhaps important, at least from a procedural standpoint. Nothing really beats abortion as a moral issue in my view, but the EPA, West Virginia versus the EPA, which is really a question of the administrative state, which I like to call the high court, uh, or not the Supreme Court, of course, but the court in the sense of the old kind of patrician, right, this sort of aristocracy that's been created and crusted over our Republican government. And in West Virginia versus EPA, the court the Supreme Court was deciding uh, whether or not it was going to gut and slash this. And they did not really go uh, far enough, certainly in my view, and I know in Liz's too. Um, you know, this is one where we could be doing a lot more winning. So let's get into that. Let's talk about the principles behind this latest decision. Um, and let's talk about how we could win more, because I don't know about you, but I'm not yet tired of winning.
Now, two things that are really important to me online are safety and privacy. That's why I like Incognito. Thousands of companies are collecting, aggregating, and trading your personal data without you knowing anything about it. Creepy, right? Well, the good news is you have the right to request data brokers to delete what information they have about you and therefore protect your privacy. The bad news is it would take you years to do this manually. The best news is Incogni can do the messy work for you automatically. Incogni helps you protect your privacy and take your personal data off the market by reaching out to data brokers on your behalf and requesting your personal data removal and then dealing with these brokers' objections. Now, most often these data brokers hold not only your name, but your email address, your home address, your phone number, the names of your relatives. I told you it was creepy. Your social security number, your employment history, your shopping habits. You need Incogni. I love it and I know you will too. The first 100 people to use my URL, it's incogni.com slash Liz Wheeler and use my promo code Liz Wheeler, get 20% off of Incogni. Protect your privacy today. Go to incogni.com slash Liz Wheeler and use code Liz, code Liz Wheeler to take your personal data off the market. Today's video is sponsored by Incogni. All right, I'm Spencer Clavin. I'm obviously not Liz Wheeler. There are a couple clues that might give that away. Uh, Liz is traveling. She's a dear friend. And so when she's out of town, sometimes I step in uh, to help out. And it's always a huge pleasure. My name is Spencer Clavin. Like I said, I host the Young Heretics podcast, which you can find wherever you get your podcasts. I'm obviously a big Liz Wheeler fan as well as her friend. And one of the things that I like to do when I get to guest host this show is, you know, Young Heretics is, I, I call it the classical education that you didn't know you were missing. And that means that one of the things that I enjoy doing is stepping back from the news cycle and asking kind of longer historical questions and philosophical questions. What are the principles at stake in our day-to-day -day fights, right? When we're fighting over this or that particular issue that we're going to forget five minutes from now, right? Um, there are longer and deeper questions at stake, some of them stretching way back even to before the founding of the country, right? The, the West, which is the, our history of in, in her, uh, inherited wisdom from Athens and Jerusalem, the great pagan philosophers of antiquity and the scriptural wisdom um, of the Jews and Christians, right? Um, this great tradition, which we are heirs and inheritors of in this country, has a bearing on these minute questions. And so today I'd like to talk about not just, you know, the EPA decision itself, you know, Liz, I'm sure is going to brief you more on this. She knows way, way more about some of the legal issues at stake here. Um, and so I'm looking forward to hearing her take when she gets back. Um, but the question of the administrative state um, is a philosophical question. It's a profound regime level political philosophy question, um, because it's effectively a question of who rules, who gets to decide, right? And in this country, um, on the basis of a long history of political philosophers debating and discussing, you know, what is most just in a regime, right? When we broke apart from England uh, and we threw off the monarchy, much as the Romans did when they kicked their kings out, we said the people decide and they are going to feed their input into this uh, tripartite system, the Republican system, which balances the different kinds of power, the different forms of government against one another. Um, but the power to make laws is going to be vested in the legislature and the le legislature, that is Congress, is going to be elected by the people. And when the administrative state comes up, people think, start immediately start to think, oh, this is all about regulations and bureaucracies. And I'm uh, falling asleep already just thinking about it. But this stuff is so crucial. It's so important because it touches upon what is sometimes referred to as the non-delegation doctrine. This is the conservative idea that, in fact, when the Constitution gives Congress gives the legislature power to make laws. It does not, in fact, give it power to pass that 
uh, responsibility off on anybody else. The reason why, because you, when you make a decision on behalf of your constituents, you are then accountable to your constituents. And those people get to hold you to account. They get to not elect you if you don't make decisions that they like. When Congress says, well, you know, we're going to broadly kind of gesture in the direction of what we like, and then we're going to create um, these bureaucratic agencies uh, staffed by unelected people who can spend their entire careers in one one location, right, basically ruling over this little fiefdom, this area that we've created, and they're going to make the decisions, the nitty gritty, the minutiae, right? Where does that idea come from because it's a fundamentally un-American idea. And it was the idea that was at issue in this case. Um, the court did not really come down hard enough on it um, and did not insist hard enough that that Congress is the one, the only body with the legitimate power to legislate. But let's get into some of the history of this. Um, and let's begin by talking about the EPA, the Environmental Protection Agency, right? Um, this case directly touches upon an act that came into being right around the same time as the EPA. The EPA is in, in 1970, also in 1970, under Nixon, by the way, under a, a, a Republican president, right? Uh, the Clean Air Act of 1970 delegates to the EPA a number of responsibilities. And it's a perfect example. The, the, the history of the EPA and of this law is a perfect example of why you don't delegate legislative powers, right? It's why Congress must be the one to say this is illegal, this is legal, um, or else things spiral wildly out of control, right? Because what happens, right, initially in this in this act, which is already in itself kind of big and overbroad, um, but initially in, in sections 111 and 112, you have some, some language about um, regulating essentially air quality, right? Emissions and air quality. Um, and in particular, the EPA is empowered or tasked, ordered to regulate pollutants that endanger, quote, endanger human health, right? Um, now, if, you, if you're going to look at that law and the, the moment when it was enacted, and you're going to tell me that what this law existed to do was to fight climate change, um, you're going to also have to try to sell me the Brooklyn Bridge, right? Because this is like the, the people who say, you know, that, that the Second Amendment only applies to certain kinds of muskets that they had in 1789, right? Um, those are the same people who then turn around and say that, yeah, well, this sort of, this is the law that gives the EPA power to regulate climate change. And you think, how did that even happen? In 1970 and for the ensuing decade, the major concern on the part of the press and the alarmists, the climate alarmists in the media was, what, what was it? Was it global warming? No, it was global cooling. And this is a cr classic example, of course, of how alarmism works, right? You kind of get a, a, a critical mass of kind of media attention behind this major issue. 1975, five years after the Clean Air Act was passed, right? Newsweek publishes this major article, the, the, the cooling earth, right? How, how we're headed potentially into a new ice age. Within 10 years, we might see, start seeing food shortages, right? Um, so at the bare minimum, right, the, when, when this act was created, Congress was not saying to the EPA, we want you to avert global warming, because that's not what the public was freaking out about at the time. The public was freaking out about this totally other thing, totally vanished into the memory hole, but that's really what's happening. You, you can go and look this up, right? Uh, as late as 1979, there were conferences being held on the, on the emergency emergency of, of global cooling. But even that isn't really, uh, from my perspective, what this whole thing was about. I mean, when, when Nixon was under pressure to start regulating air quality, um, the people coming to him weren't thinking about, you know, what are the uh, what are the effects of greenhouse gases, right? Or, or how can the temperature of the earth be regulated? They were thinking, you know, in my cities, I don't want to have to drive through smog. I don't want to have potentially cancer causing chemicals in the air. I don't want pollutants in the water, right? These sorts of more kind of human things 
things that people, regular folks, uh, experience in their day-to-day relationship with the environment. Um, and they were asking the government to do something about this. Um, and so that's what this sort of whole uh, delegation was initially about, right? And so instead of saying, instead of Congress saying, well, okay, you know, we or either or state legislatures are going to ad- directly address that question by writing clear rules about what ought, to, uh, ought not, not to be done, that would be legislating, right? Instead of doing that, they, they created this body, the EPA, which was uh, intended in part, right, to figure out how to just make air healthy. And already you can tell how, how broad that is and how open it is to interpretation and reinterpretation, right? And so since then, um, we've had a, a little case study in how these things can go awry because a, a few things happened, right, that were, that were crucially important. Uh, one of which is maybe the most famous, and that's the Chevron case, right? Um, this is in the 80s. The, the Supreme Court has a, a decision in front of it, right, about whether the, uh, how the Clean Air Act is to be interpreted because it turns out there's a lot of ambiguities in this thing, right? And the, the agency has been given this kind of broad mandate. Um, how does it figure out to how to enact this thing, right? And, and it turns out that in the enacting of the mandate, it basically has to at least interpret, if not make laws, right? So in, in this Chevron case, right, the EPA passed a regulation allowing states to treat all pollution emitting devices in the same industrial grouping as one big bubble, right? One group. And this can get stuff can get obscure. Um, and it's it's kind of minute at first. And that's how they always get you right. But it's actually crucially important. Um, St. St. Thomas Aquinas writes in one of his essays that and he's quoting uh, Aristotle, the philosopher Aristotle here, he says a small error in the beginning makes a great error in the end. And that's what you're seeing, you're seeing this the broadness, right? And the, um, and the the lack of accountability, gradually translating into this fourth branch of government, this whole new state entity. And so in this case, right, the EPA is actually doing something that on its face looks kind of lenient. It looks like they're giving, uh, they're giving businesses a way to meet some of their regulations in, in a less burdensome way, right? You can, you can install or modify one piece of equipment without needing a new permit if it's part of this larger uh, bubble of equipment, this larger grouping of equipment. And this is all, again, remember, to uh, protect the air from pollution, right? Um, still not talking about about greenhouse gases, by the way, that comes way later. Still thinking about what Congress initially was concerned about, what Nixon and his constituents were, were concerned about or the, the lobby groups were concerned about. And that's sort of clean air. Right. Um, and and the court rules in a landmark ruling, a, a crucial. I mean, this is the row of of the. Uh, of, of the administrative state issue, right? If Roe is the kind of landmark ruling of the abortion issue that sets us down this path, right? Chevron is the Roe of the of uh, the administrative state issue because the court says that the EPA basically gets to make it an interpretation. If it's reasonable, you can interpret. The, the EPA gets to interpret and decide how they're going to apply um, this, this mandate. And this is why we're dealing with a violation of the delegation doctrine, right? It's because the, when Congress tells the EPA to go off and do this, right? One of two things is possible. Either they go away and they realize this is this is kind of vague. Um, and so what we need is for Congress to ma- say what it wants, what it really wants. And then the EPA, you know, if, if, if anything, the EPA can say, well, you know, it'll do the science to determine whether such and such a violation, you know, meets Congress's standards. But instead, what happens, right, is the EPA gets to just decide what Congress wants. They say, well, Congress says clean up the air and uh, we get to decide how that happens. Right. So this is the, the Chevron case that kind of uh, cracks open this this whole 
whole can of worms. Um, then in 2007, right, so way, way after the global cooling thing is long, far in the distance, right, everybody's freaking out now about greenhouse gases, we're worried about global warming all of a sudden, right, Earth's going to end in 5, 10, 15, 20 years, take your pick. Um, now, suddenly, the, the court has another decision, which it says, actually, yes, um, regulating air quality um, and regulating um, what's, you know, pollutants that endanger human health, that includes regulating greenhouse gases. And so you can, EPA, uh, pay attention to, you know, how, uh, how our energy production sources are, are creating these greenhouse gases, the trap heat, right? And let me let me say, you know, I, I am kind of a squish on this and that I, I do think that we should take care of the environment. I think that, you know, man-made climate change is a thing. I don't think it's the catastrophic disaster that's being presented us, to us as. And I think that the people who are presenting it that way um, are always reaching their hands into our wallets, always trying to take power and money away from the people, right? Um, all of that having been said, right, if Congress wanted to pass a law dealing with greenhouse gases, of course, they should because they're Congress, because we elected them and we can decide if what they're doing is good or bad. And then we cannot elect them in the future. Right. That's how the system works. That's how the people retain their sovereignty. But instead, again, right, the court decides, yes, greenhouse gases, these are within the remit of of the EPA. Um, and, and not only that. Right. But under Obama, now we're going to start to get uh, this sort of shift, not only from whether the EPA is going to regulate just, you know, one particular power plant um, in, in, you know, to, to basically reform some of its its procedures, but instead the EPA is going to pull back the camera. Um, and, and this is just wildly out of keeping with the spirit of the original law. Right? It's going to pull back the camera and it's going to look at the whole industry and perform industry-wide changes that have to do with, quote unquote, next generation, right? Generational shifts, meaning basically that the coal industry full stop is toast, right? Um, let me read to you from the syllabus of this case, because now we're getting into the question that, that West Virginia brought, right? They said this, this is basically just destroying the coal industry because you've decided, right, that it, it cannot stand, right? Um, and so having decided, this is from the syllabus of, of West Virginia versus EPA, right, um, that, the, uh, that, the, that they could reduce carbon pollution mostly by moving production to cleaner sources. EPA then set about determining, quote, the degree of emission limitation achievable through the application of that system. The agency recognized that in translating the BSER into an operational emissions limit, it could choose whether to require anything from a little generation shifting to a great deal. It settled on what it regarded as a reasonable amount of shift, which it based on modeling how much more electricity, both natural gas and renewable sources could supply without causing undue cost increases or reducing the overall power supply. This is in the EPA's estimation, right? The EPA gets to interpret the law. Now the EPA gets to decide what's reasonable, right? Um, that it would be feasible to have coal provide 27% of national electricity generation by 2030, down from 38% in 2014. From these projected changes, EPA determined the applicable emissions performance rates, which were so strict that no existing coal plant would have been able to achieve them without engaging in one of three means of generation shifting. The government projected that the rule would impose billions in compliance costs, raise retail electricity prices, require the retirement of dozens of coal plants, and eliminate tens of thousands of jobs. This is why when I say, you know, when, when people talk about this, the uh, administrative state, I want you to think about the court, right? The grand, uh, you know, the, the court of King Louis XIV, right? Because one of the things that happens when you create these bodies is if the president is friendly to them, um, then he can wield them to his advantage. This is what 
Biden tried to do with OSHA, another such body, right, when he tried to mandate vaccines in the workplace. And so when the Supreme Court struck that down, right, that was another kind of tentative blow against this um, against this structure, saying, no, you can't just wield this. But but presidents have been doing this basically forever, as we're shortly going to get into. As long as there have been these bodies, right, presidents that that are friendly to the progressive agenda have been wielding these bodies to basically exert monarchic authority. But presidents like Donald Trump, right, who are not fans of the swamp, not fans of the deep state, have been thwarted at every turn. And so what it turns out is you have your own basically autonomous branch of government, which within its ever expanding remit of control can be the executive, the judicial and the legislative branch. It gets to decide what the law is. It gets to carry out the law and it gets to interpret the law. Right. And it's, it's basically a little fiefdom over some area of American life in this case gradually, not just the environment, but business, right? So here's the, here is like a little, a little parable in miniature of how these, you know, minute mistakes, right, of Congress delegating its power to another agency balloon, explode outward, right, into a basically a, a, a government unto itself that can be wielded by, by presidents who are in favor of progressive change, um, but that can't be wielded by presidents who try to oppose it. So it's a one-way ratchet, right? It only ever moves one way. It only ever entrenches its power only ever digs its claws in deeper. Now let's talk about where, before we look at what was decided in this case and what still needs to be done, let's talk about where this whole idea comes from. Congress can just create new government agencies that run your life. Now, I like Nutrafol because it's natural and it works. Win-win. We all know that half of the people who are watching my show are balding men. You know who you are. There's no shame to this. But there is a holistic solution for men that promotes both healthier hair and whole body wellness without drugs or prescriptions. It's called Nutrafol. Nutrafol is clinically shown to improve hair growth, thickness, and visible scalp coverage without compromise. It's made of 21 potent natural ingredients that support sex drive, better sleep, and less stress too. In a clinical study, men showed progressive improvement in hair growth and thickness after three and six months. You too can grow thicker, healthier hair, and you can support our show. Who doesn't love to do both? By going to Nutrafol.com and entering my promo code, Liz, to save $15 off your first month's subscription. This is their best offer anywhere, and it's only available to US customers for a limited time. Plus, you get free shipping on every order. Get $15 off at Nutrafol.com. It's spelled N-U-T-R-A-F-O-L.com if you use my promo code Liz. Nutrafol.com promo code Liz. You'll be glad you did. Dave Rubin uses this and I think we've all seen his hair. It certainly works. Nutrafol.com promo code Liz. So like I said, my favorite thing to do, especially uh, over on Young Heretics, is to kind of dig back into the history of some of this stuff and to ask, what are the philosophical principles at work, right? Um, when you're dealing with ancient questions like who rules, right? That's an ancient question. It's been around at least, you know, since the Greeks argued uh, over the best form of government in the fifth century BC and even beforehand. Um, and probably before that, you know, you can read in the book of Judges, in the book of Kings, right? In the Bible, um, people asking this question, who should rule, right? Remember when the Israelites say, give us a king to rule over us. That's a version of this question. And those questions don't go away just because we get new tech, just because things get more complicated, right? Um, but when I say that, when I say that ancient questions with ancient answers and ancient, which call up ancient virtues in us, right? When I say that, I'm basically contradicting the very progressive line that got us to the administrative state in the first place. Because one guy that we really need to talk about when we talk about uh, government organizations like EPA um, and these regulatory bodies that become little, little fiefdoms unto themselves, right? We've got to talk about Woodrow 
Wilson, right? One of the big capital P progressives. So now when we talk about progressivism, right, we meet a certain ideology, but there was also a progressive uh, party, right, in, in the state. And, and that party represented a certain uh, system of governmental propositions, right, which Wilson defended famously in a, a, an essay called The Study of Administration. And in this essay, which was written in 1887, right, so going, going back into the archives here a little bit, um, in this essay, what Wilson basically said is, you know, yes, for a long time, people have been arguing over who should rule. And we sort of come, came at a certain point in our national development, we came to the decision that, um, well, I guess, you know, the, the, the people ought to rule. That seems just to us now, here and now, right? But, but really, you know, we've kind of outgrown that, you know, we've outgrown this, this kind of false idea of an absolute truth that because, you know, the people were created free, therefore they get to make their own decisions, even if they make the wrong decisions, right? That just seems awfully inefficient. And basically situation, the situation has gotten too complicated and too advanced uh, for that sort of decision-making really to work anymore. So let me read to you this, uh, this passage from a famous essay, right? Of course, says uh, says Wilson, all reasonable preference would declare for this English and American course of politics rather than for that of any European country. He's saying, we, we know, we, we like our, our English and American history. Um, we would not have liked to have had Prussia's history for the sake of having Prussia's administrative skill and Prussia's particular system of administration would quite suffocate us. It is better to be untrained and free than to be servile and systematic. So he's conceding that, you know, up to this, up to a point, of course, freedom, freedom's all right. Um, still, there is no denying that it would be better yet to be both free in spirit and proficient in practice. Now, free, anytime somebody says you're going to be free in spirit, uh, I want you to have a little alarm bell going off in your head because you should be free in fact, right? In applicable ways that apply directly to your life, right? So that in principle and in practice, nobody can come in and just shut down, take away your job, shut down your livelihood um, because of a, you know, grand design theory of where the world is headed and where history is headed. So free in spirit and proficient in practice. That's for me, that's my first red flag. He goes on. It is easy. Even, is this even more reasonable preference, which impels us to discover what there may be to hinder or delay us in naturalizing this much to be desired science of administration? What there, what then is there to prevent it? Well, principally, popular sovereignty. And now let me make a distinction here because you might have heard of popular sovereignty. And we're going to talk a little bit soon in the next episode about popular sovereignty as the kind of uh, principle that emboldened uh, Stephen Douglas to want the American nation to be founded on what he called the white basis, that is to continue slavery in this country. Right. So and that was total popular sovereignty that no matter what, if something is good or bad, the only thing that determines whether it's right is for the people, a majority to decide. Right. And that's what Lincoln called majority tyranny. Right? Um, but this is different popular sovereignty when when Wilson's talking about it is is just the idea that the people fundamentally get to decide within limits right within absolute within limits of moral absolutes um, that we all have to agree on in order to even have a country right but the people decide that's popular sovereignty to Wilson it is harder for democracy to organize administration than for monarchy the very completeness of our most cherished political successes in the past embarrasses us we have enthroned public opinion and it is forbidden us to hope during its reign for any quick schooling of the sovereign in executive expertness or in the conditions of perfect functional balance in government. The very fact that we have realized popular rule in its fullness has made the task of organizing that rule just so much the more difficult. In order to make any advance at all, we must instruct and persuade a multitudinous monarch 
called public opinion. He's saying we've replaced the efficiency of a king with this rabble, this untutored rabble that they really, they're kind of slow. They don't really understand a lot of things. They take a long time to come to any kind of agreement. Wouldn't it be better if we could just sort of dictate, right? A much less feasible undertaking than to influence a single monarch called a king. An individual sovereign will adopt a simple plan and carry it out directly. He will have but one opinion, and he will embody that one opinion in one command. But this other sovereign, the people, will have a score of differing opinion, diversity of thought. Imagine that. They can agree upon nothing simple. Advance must be made through compromise, by a compounding of differences, by a trimming of plans and a suppression of two straightforward principles. There will be a succession of resolves running through a course of years, a dropping fire of commands running through the whole gamut of modifications. Wherever regard for public opinion is a first principle of government, practical reform must be slow, and all reform must be full of compromises. For wherever public opinion exists, it must rule. This is now an axiom half the world over, and will presently come to be believed even in Russia. Whoever would effect a change in a modern constitutional government must first educate his fellow citizens to want some change. That done, he must persuade them to want the particular change he wants. He must first make public opinion willing to listen, and then see to it that it listened to the right things. He must stir it up to search for an opinion and then manage to put the right opinion in its way. Now, what Wilson is describing here as the problem is American government as founded. We have to understand this. The progressive project is not just, you know, a few policy proposals that we like. It is a wholesale proposition to erase and scrap Republican government because it's inefficient and because things have just gotten too complicated and we need enlightened bureaucrats and magistrates to rule the way that monarchs did. And so this is why when I say, you know, when people talk about the EPA and the regulatory agencies and, you know, Obama's different policies versus Biden's versus Trump's, right, you immediately start to, your eyes start to glaze over. But every time that happens, just think, right, that even though it's all, it sounds very modern, it sounds very technocratic and sort of uh, high tech, what it really is, is the most ancient principle of sovereign rule by individual fiat, right? It sounds like it's this progressive advance. It's actually primitive in the extreme. The best and highest form of government, the most advanced form of government is ours because it is founded on the people's natural right to govern themselves, to rule and be ruled in turn, as Aristotle might say. And there is no progressing beyond that. There are certain absolute truths beyond which we do not progress. And every change just represents a regression, which you see very clearly here in Wilson's argument, right? In the fact that he's pretending to be offering this great, great new, hey, I have a great new idea. Um, what if, what if we just had one person make the decisions, right? Or what if that person was really, really smart? It's like monarchy, but do it with smart guys, right? Um, and of course, right, this was, this was a mistake at the time. And there were people who opposed it at the time, but now in the wake of 2020, it is laughable, right? And basically to read this guy, this, this poor bumbling fool come along and say, well, we really, what we really need is to invest sovereignty in kind of a, uh, organization that can keep track. And things have gotten so complicated, you know, um, that, that we really can't rely on the people to make their own decisions. We need the smart experts to come in, you know, like the geniuses that managed COVID, right? Like the people that managed the, the, the pandemic, because that was so efficient and nothing ever changed, right? From the beginning, it was always, we always knew that masks were required. Dr. Fauci never, you know, lied to us and told us that he didn't want masks, right? He never told us that one amount of vaccination would be okay. And then, then upped it. The Biden administration never said, well, we, we won't require vaccines and then did. Right? Of course, I'm being sarcastic here, right? Because we know what a thoroughgoing disaster ruled by expert was during the COVID regime. And that 
countries which uh, did not go, the few countries that didn't go down that path, the, the few states that protected their citizenry from uh, bureaucratic overreach, right? Those were the states where people lived free and basically had, you know, the same or better outcomes COVID-wise, right? And so the very notion that that this form of government, let alone whether it's just, right, that this form of government by expert um, is go actually going to work is laughable in 2020 and 2021 and 2022, right? This should be looked upon as the most primitive form of, of regressivism, right? This is just a ridiculous idea that this would work. Uh, we've seen it fail flat on its face again and again. The best experts, the best military experts in the world, right, led us into disaster in Afghanistan. 20 years of failure, right, followed by a, a catastrophic uh, disaster on the world stage, right, in our in our withdrawal. COVID-19 showed us what these people believe and how good they are at their jobs. The answer is not very. So leaving aside for a second, right, the question whether it's just to have uh, to have, uh, you know, sovereignty invested in a monarch, which I've already told you my opinion there. But just look for a second at the very idea and you'll find that it's ridiculous to say that you can invest. You know, the, the best way to make these decisions is by precisely the uh, the procedure that Wilson rejects. That is the gradual persuasion among competing classes of opinion, right, uh, until eventually we reach a compromise and a consensus. That is exactly what James Madison said this country would be founded on in Federalist Paper Number 10. And that is exactly what Wilson said we should scrap because we've moved beyond it. History has proven him wrong. All right, now let's talk about what actually happened in this case and why there's still a long way to go. Now, I like Moinkbox because they are helping keep the U.S. independent from China. 60% of U.S. pork production comes from one company. It's owned by the Chinese. And their hogs are given something called ractopamine, which is banned in 160 countries, including in China, yet you find it in your grocery store aisle every day. Moink delivers grass-fed and grass-finished beef and lamb, pastured pork and chicken, and sustainable wild-caught Alaskan salmon straight to your door. Moink Farmer's Farm, kind of like our grandparents did. And as a result, Moink meat tastes like it should because the family farm does it better. You choose the meat delivered in every box that you receive, like ribeyes, chicken breasts, pork chops, salmon fillets, and much more. Plus, if you don't like it, you can cancel anytime. I love Moink because they're committed to our country. I know that you will like it too. And my husband can attest to the fact that Moink meat tastes good. So keep American farming going by signing up at moinkbox.com slash Liz right now. And if you use my URL, moinkbox.com slash Liz, then you will get free filet mignon in every order for a year. That is one year of the best filet mignon that you will ever taste, but it is for limited time. It's spelled M-O-I-N-K box.com slash Liz. That's moinkbox.com slash Liz. You'll be glad you did it. Okay, so I said at the beginning that the answer to the administrative state, the final answer to the administrative state ought to be the non-delegation doctrine, non-delegation principle, um, which is effectively just the classical answer or rather the classical Republican answer to the question who rules, right? And the small r republic is, is uh, you know, vests power, representative power in the people and then balances that power, distributes it throughout a kind of monarchic entity in the, the presidency, which has very, very qualified, right, uh, qualified quasi-monarchic powers, but which are checked by the people's legislature um, and, and the courts as well, right? Um, that is, in the courts alone, that is still kind of working how it's supposed to, right? At least in this court, 
court, right? We have these we have these uh, conservative justices who are attempting effectively to to hand legislature back to Congress and saying, "You legislate, you be responsible, you be accountable," right? Um, and 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 the the way to really do that would be to insist upon the non delegation doctrine. It would be to say, you know, if you want to say that that something is legal or illegal, that authority rests with Congress alone, right? Um, it, 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 it's another question, right? It's not that, you know, no active delegation can ever occur within government. And people always get this confused when they argue against non-delegation. They say, well, delegation's been around forever, right? That's just how governments work. And, you know, to a certain extent, that's true. But the crucial point of the non-delegation doctrine is that you don't delegate legislating, right? And legislating means saying what is legal and what is not in as clear terms as possible, right? And if it turns out that then in that legislation, let's say, for example, that Congress wanted to make a law uh, limiting greenhouse gas emissions to a certain point, right, to a certain level, right? I, I'm not sure I would support that law, but let's say they wanted to make it, right? They would have to say what the level is. And then the EPA, if anything, could go away and sort of measure, figure out how to measure levels effectively, right? I mean, that kind of thing, there's a clear distinction between making that decision, issuing that directive, um, and what the EPA is actually doing, right, which is setting the levels, determining how to measure the levels, um, de determining how to uh, enforce these these red regulations, right? Um, that's why they've become their their own government, and so that should be the principle that the court is operating on, um, and that would lead to an overturn, for example, of Chevron, which did not happen in this case. This case did not overturn Chevron. Um, instead, what it did was resort uh, to this major this doctrine called the Major Questions Doctrine, um, and this is you know, Roberts writing the lead patient opinion, kind of known to be a squish, um, didn't really, didn't really uh, drive the point home here, um, but instead resorted to something which was also part of the OSHA, the OSHA case on the, on the vaccine mandate, right? And the major questions doctrine basically says, you know, if Congress wants to resolve a major question of interpretation or of legislation, then it needs to do so itself. It needs to make clear statements. Um, and the EPA or any other sort of delegated agency can't resolve these major questions. And you can see Liz uh, did a great tweet there about this in which she said, it's, this is as dumb as it sounds because who determines what's a major question, right? Um, always there are going to be gray areas in any form of legal interpretation, but at least the non-delegation doctrine has a clear line, right? To say something is illegal or illegal, that belongs to Congress. Um, and yeah, that means that laws are going to take longer to make. That means that people are going to fight more over compromises. That means that, you know, there will be fewer laws and fewer regulations, right? Um, and all of those are a good thing, right? That's how the country was meant to work. Um, and they're even themselves not the bestest thing, right? The bestest thing is that they all rely on the people's elected representatives exerting sovereignty that comes from a legitimate source, right? That's the key here with all of these Supreme Court decisions, right? That's why it's so important to ask the philosophical question first, right? What are we actually trying to do in this country? How is the country founded? How is it designed to work? Um, it's not like you're saying that Congress can't possibly ever delegate any sort of task. You're saying Congress can't delegate legislative tasks. Um, and it's interesting that in some of the opinions in this in this case, um, there were justices flirting with having that argument, but they never really came out and, and, and had it. So I want to read to you some passages from two different decisions. One, one um, in a concurrence from Justice Gorsuch, right? Another justice that, you know, we've not been super happy with. I've not been super happy with. Um, but he does start to raise some of these issues, including the Wilson of it all, right? Um, so let me read to you some of that. And then let me read Elena Kagan's dissent, um, which basically says, along with Wilson, you're too stupid uh, to elect the right people and your elected representatives are too stupid to make the right laws. Um, so here's, here's Gorsuch. He says, the major questions doctrine works in much the same way to protect the Constitution's separation of powers. Um, the people in Article I of the Constitution vested all federal legislative powers in Congress. 
Um, this is from the preamble, right, in Article 1. Uh, as Chief Justice Marshall put it, this means that important subjects must be entirely regulated by the legislature itself, even if Congress may leave the executive to act under such general provisions to fill up the details. Doubtless, what qualifies as an important subject and what constitutes a detail may be debated. Uh, and this is where this gray area, this big, big gray area, and why the major questions doctrine kind of falls apart, right? Is like, you know, if, if it's only major questions that Congress gets to decide, right? I mean, we want Congress to be deciding all questions of law. That's their job, right? And they are doing it because they are accountable. And if they become, if they shirk accountability by, by shoving that responsibility off on some other state entity, um, then full stop, they've, they've uh, betrayed the public's trust, right? Now, Gorsuch is saying uh, that they only really have to make the major, the major decisions. And that seems, this seems like, you know, it doesn't go far enough. It's not going to fix the problem, but um, it does raise the issue. And there's an interesting little discussion here that comes next about our system of government. He says, no less than its rules against retroactive legislation or protecting sovereign immunity, the constitution's rule vesting federal legislative power in Congress is quote, vital to the integrity and maintenance of the system of government ordained by the constitutions from another court case, Marshall Field and Co. v. Clark. Um, it is vital because the framers believed, the, the framers of the Constitution believed that a republic, a thing of the people, would be more likely to enact just laws than a regime administered by a ruling class of largely unaccountable ministers. This is from Federalist 11. From time to time, some have questioned that assessment. And now here's a footnote quoting Woodrow Wilson. He says, for example, Woodrow Wilson famously argued that, quote, popular sovereignty embarrassed the nation because it made it harder to achieve executive expertness, the study of administration, right? That's the essay that I just read to you from. In Wilson's eyes, the mass of the people were selfish, ignorant, timid, stubborn, or foolish. He expressed even greater disdain for particular groups defending the white men of the South for ridding themselves by fair means or foul of the intolerable burden of government sustained by the votes of ignorant African-Americans. Uh, this is from the History of the American People, by, also by Wilson, right? He likewise denounced immigrants from the South of Italy and men of the meaner sort out of Hungary and Poland who possessed neither skill nor energy nor any initiative of quick intelligence. Now, this is an amazing, this is a, a nice little footnote, I have to say, in a decision that I'm not not a big fan of, right? This is a, a nice little footnote um, because <laughs> this is always what it amounts to when people start to say that the people right, are too dumb to really make the good decisions. They mean those people, right? They never mean themselves, right? Somebody who says to you, the people, right, don't have the right opinions about things. Ipso facto, that guy's not including himself in the people. He's so enlightened that he knows what's right, right? Or he's, his kind of appointed bureaucrats know what's right. Um, and this is the philosophy that created the administrative state during the new, in the New Deal, right? And, and thereafter, um, and in the 70s, right, with this creation of the EPA, um, this is the philosophy that it's, it doesn't, really belong to you because you're just not qualified. You're not competent for it. And, and Gorsuch, you know, for all the flaws of this opinion is noting, right, that this always cashes out, not in terms of the people, but some people, <laughs> those people, the rubes, the black people, the immigrants, whatever, take your pick. You know, people think that this is about the conservatives have this like particular animus against some, some group. But in fact, what we're saying is everybody, right, has flaws. Everybody has, you know, good and bad points. Everybody has different prejudices, depending on where they come from, depending on how they grew up. But everybody is created free. You 
me, the libs, right? The rubes, the guys out in the middle of nowhere who just, you know, farm and you might have so such disdain for those dumb farmers, right? That man was created free. And guess what, right? He knew communism was bad when like, you know, all the great intelligentsia of the world were falling for it. And so even the idea that these folks are dumb, right, is in itself a ruse. But the, the whole point is that even if they are dumb, right, their collective decision making, their arguments, their human interactions, their local choices, and their compromises are going to make truer, better, juster decisions than these snobs that turn up their noses at whatever class. It doesn't matter what, you know, pick, take your pick. Maybe you, maybe Wilson hated this particular class of people. Maybe Elena Kagan hates, you know, Trumpists or whatever. But the whole point is, it doesn't matter what group you're turning at your, up your nose at. They all are created free. And if they're an American citizen, then sovereignty rests in part with them, right? Then sovereignty rests with the collective body of Americans. So let me read Elena Kagan now, uh, just to close, um, so that we can keep this in our mind as we hope for better Supreme Court decisions and court decisions generally and laws indeed uh, in, in this area going forward. Right? Here's Kagan's dissent. He says, she says, members of Congress often don't know enough and know they don't know enough to regulate sensibly on an issue. Of course, members can and do provide overall direction, but then they rely, as all of us rely in our daily lives, on people with greater expertise and experience. Those people are found in agencies. Now, this is so insidious to me because, yes, all of us in our daily lives rely on people with expertise and experience, people we trust to tell us things we don't know, right? Um, but if we are free people, right, what do we do with that? We hear, we listen, we decide between a number of different opinions, many of them expert, right? And then we make our own choices because even though we're not the experts, we are the sovereigns. We are free. We are sovereign in our own lives, right? And so, yes, of course, like Congress should have agencies that can deliver information to them so that they can legislate because they have the sovereignty that was given to them by the people to do so, right? They have that measure of our sovereignty um, and no one else has it. And so, yes, they should listen to experts. They should try to figure out information that they don't themselves know, but it's up to them to make the decisions, right? And so it does. And it, it, here's, here's uh, Kagan again, right? It, it, it listens to these experts, especially though by no means exclusively when an issue has a scientific or technical dimension of science, capital S science. Remember how well that worked out for us? Remember how it never changed during COVID? Science. Why wouldn't Congress instruct EPA, says Kagan, to select the best system of emission reduction rather than try to choose that system itself? Congress knows that systems of emission reduction lie not in its own, but in EPA's unique expertise. Secondly, and relatedly, members of Congress often can't know enough, and again, know they can't, to keep regulatory schemes working across time. Congress can't usually predict the future, can't anticipate changing circumstances and the way they will affect varied regulatory techniques. Exactly. Yes, Elena Kagan. That's why the EPA mandate was too broad to begin with and why the many opinions that have overbroadened that mandate again and again throughout the decades are a travesty because they, Congress, right, if, if things change, if issues change so radically um, that the law has to be rewritten, Congress needs to reconsider those issues. <laughs> That's how it's supposed to work. And yes, there is inefficiency built into the system. And yes, there is compromise. And yes, people you don't like are going to get to have a say. People who don't look like you, people who don't act like you, people who don't talk like you or think like you, people who live in rural areas and believe in Jesus and do sorts of things like pray on football fields. Those people, too, are going to be involved in the decision. And if you don't like it, tough, because this is America and sovereignty rests 
with us. I hope that a better uh, decision will come down the line later on um, to help us to uh, work our way back. I still believe, especially after these these court decisions, that our system is not dead. It may be you know on his deathbed, breathing, uh, gasping under the weight of decades of bad policy and bad decision. But it is still possible, as the court showed in Dobbs, to return decision making to the right places, to the right people who who uh, own it by right. It's still possible to do that. Sovereignty rests with us, and we can still take it back. Thanks for listening. Thanks for watching. I'm Spencer Clavin, and this is The Liz Wheeler Show. The Liz Wheeler Show is produced by Jonathan Hay. Executive producer, Chad Abbott. Director of photography, Kevin McRoberts. Editor, Alejandro Figuerilla. Sound mixer, Robin Fenderson. Director of marketing, Emily Washler. Production and talent coordinator, Matt Toffler. And senior publicist, Patricia Jackson. This has been a Soundfront production.